Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True Crime New England. What's up, everybody? Hello, welcome back to another episode. Thank you for joining us on this beautiful Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, whatever day you're listening to this. Welcome! How's it going? Me? Yeah. I'm okay. Doing fine. I'll take it. Yeah, right? How are you? I hope I'm doing good. Okay. We're going to manifest into the future that I'm doing good on this particular day. Sure. I mean, I feel like I always work Thursdays, like overnight Wednesday into Thursday mornings. Right. Yeah. So I'm probably very tired on this day, (laughs) but that's okay. I'm all right with it. But let's manifest for the future us right now, because obviously, as you guys know, we record in advance, which is sometimes why things happen and we don't cover it on the episode. Like an update in a true crime case or whatever. It's because we're in the past, guys. Stick with us. We, you know, we'll get to it eventually. And you'll know when we record again because that update will be there. Yes. And if we owe you a shout out for whatever reason, and you're feeling as though that shout out is delayed. Probably is. Probably. Please do not worry. We do them in a timely manner. We just acknowledge them in the past. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it's just more rewarding that way. Yeah. I hope. And it maybe would get you guys to listen to see if you hear your name. (laughs) So welcome. And, you know, speaking of hearing your name, today we have a very big call to action. As most of you know, if you are loyal, loyal listeners, we are approaching our two-year anniversary of True Crime New England. What? That's crazy. It's the one-year anniversary of the one year of our anniversary. So it's been crazy. And that being said, last year we did a fun little bonus episode on the actual day that our first episode came out but a year later, and it was so much fun. We had a great time. Yeah, we talked about our favorite episodes we've done. Mm -hmm. We did a couple fun things. I know a lovely listener, Kim, thank you so much. Thanks, Kim. We adore you. (laughs) You gave us probably one of the best ideas I've ever heard, where we did superlatives, kind of true crime, New England-related categories, and we just had so much fun with it. It was a great time. We also went over statistics about what was going on with our podcast, Instagram followers, how many listens we had at that time, et cetera, et cetera. So that, at the very least, we can redo again, but that's not super exciting. It's more of us being like, brag, 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 (laughs) brag. We need something. We need to do something big for you guys, and we wanted to leave it up to you. I think mostly because I have no ideas. I don't think I've even processed that we're coming up on our two years. It's kind of disgusting, isn't it? (laughs) I can't believe it. Like, we're recording episode 85 right now. Yeah, it's crazy. By the time our two-year anniversary happens, we'll still be a few episodes away from 100. Uh, We are planning on doing something like a crazy case for episode 100, something big. For our episode for our two-year and our little special bonus episode we can do, we need help. We need ideas ideas for things you'd like for us to discuss maybe go back and listen to that bonus episode so you have an idea of our format that Mm -hmm. we came up with on the fly for a fun bonus episode yes and uh let us know yes and also listen back on that episode and give liz's cousin mora a real big round of applause for even 
giving us that idea in the first place. Yes, thanks, Mora. Thank you, Mora. Mora, if you have any more ideas about that, help out, please. Please, please help us. Because I, I thought it was fantastic, and I'm glad we did it, because it was very interesting and a lot of fun. And, you know, side note, guys, if you haven't listened to it or if you forget, the end of it is kind of sad, because I talk about my grandma who passed away just mere weeks before. But she's a big reason why we do our swear jar, and she's obviously, like, a lot of you guys who listen to us know about her and are familiar with her. So you, you know, she's a part of the fam. But just of note, I cry at that episode. So be careful. Other than that, great time. Great time was had. And we had a lot of fun behind the scenes doing like the superlatives, kind of going through our episodes and being like, what is the most amazing police department's sarcastically. And, you know, who was the most human Q-tippy out of all of the episodes we did? I'm thinking for this year, maybe you guys, if you're able to go back to the start of this year. So after our bonus episode, if you want to go through all of our episodes that we did since then and kind of help us recap this past year with your faves and stuff, let us know. We will put on our story a little poll about what your favorite episodes are and we'll see if we get we probably will get more responses because our following has grown quite a bit since our one year anniversary and I'm sure we'll get different answers than we had last year so just keep an eye out what are some things you guys would want do you want us to do like a live on Instagram do you want us to I don't know that's the only thing I can think of at this very moment Help us. Help. Lord, <laughs> please. And we also need your help with something else. Oh, my God. So the case we have today is out of Rhode Island. And as we were deciding what case to do from that state, we kind of started to sweat a little bit. A lot of it. It's okay. You can say it. We were, <laughs> we were drenched. We had originally chosen a much different topic for this episode. Very interesting. We were very excited. And yeah, that did not happen. It was extremely lacking in really any substantial information. Yes. Um, which was very frustrating. And so we consulted our master list of cases and we realized that we are running very alarmingly low on Rhode Island cases. That may come as no surprise to a lot of people, but <laughs> it's scarce. The episodes, the cases, were coming to a dangerous, dangerous close, closed end here. And we like to joke around that, oh, no one's going to notice if we switch up the order of the states that we cover. Right. Um, Noah, I know you're listening, and I know that you very meticulously have our state order memorized. So maybe you specifically, so we keep the order just for you. Rhode Island cases, please. Please. And this is the tough part. So many Rhode Island cases involve the mob and the mafia. And while we, as you all know, love every aspect of the mob and the mafia and all of the people involved and their their lifestyle and their cuisine and their loyalty, we love, 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 love them. We just don't feel it's appropriate to cover them on our true crime podcast when there's no crime happening. So we would love it if you guys can find us cases that aren't involving our friends, the mafia. We are so scared of them. We are so scared. And by scared, we mean close friends. 
my heart is beating so quick just at the thought of the mob. Yeah. Whether it's out of love or fear, mostly love. So much love. But yeah, Rhode Island, for some reason, the mafia supposedly, supposedly right. loves to hang out in Rhode Island. So we've heard. It's, it's rumors. rumors. God, I hate them. Yeah. Please just ideas for our year two bonus episode. Ideas for Rhode Island cases for the love of God. I know I feel like we're constantly asking you for things. Mm. That's the small price to pay for being a loyal listener. Absolutely. Just help us help you. Please. We want to give to you what you give to us. And that is love and a healthy fear of the mob. (laughs) So that being said, today's episode has literally nothing to do with the mob. And they never will because the mob is innocent on all charges you will give to them. I love the mob. But truly, our case today has literally nothing to do with anything. It's pretty, and it's an interesting case of profiling. Yeah, yeah. And it's really interesting how, you know, it it got really carried away. Yes. So we do our best to talk about the victim, of course. Yeah. But then we really get into profiling. That's a good word, Liz. And it's unfortunate because the main character of this awful, awful event, uh, Christine Cole, as you may see from the title, there's literally nothing about her death. There's nothing. It's so little. But there's everything about the suspect that they look into. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting. And we we promise we tried and we looked. I scoured every inch of Google and Bing for information about this little girl. And I found next to nothing. It's heartbreaking and it's not right. Pretty shitty. Pretty shitty. And she's a little white girl. It's not like she was, you know, this often happens in cases of people of color. But no, she, yeah, she was white and there still wasn't a whole bunch. So it's interesting. And without further ado, today we will be covering the The murder murder of Christine Cole. Okay. In typical true crime New England fashion, Katie, please, what do you have for sources today? I have ABC News, The Boston Globe, TurnTo10.com, and WPRI. Awesome. I feel like we cannot go to Rhode Island spiritually without going to WPRI. I couldn't agree more. I use the Providence Journal, Inside Edition, The Valley Breeze, Scary Carries. It's a website. I think it's somebody's blog. I also use Find a Grave, the United States District Court of Rhode Island, and also an article from The Times written by Jonathan Bissonette. I thought that The Times was too broad of a title, or I didn't know if it was a specific one, so I quoted him. Will note, though, there was a lot of missing letters in this article, so I'm not really sure how great this man is at writing, (laughs) or if that's just how it happened to be published. So apologies. But I did use all of those sources. So let's go over the day in question and a little bit about Christine, which again, unfortunately, we really don't have that much information on. And that's so, so awful. Born on January 4th of 1978, Christine Ann Cole was a sweet little girl with big, dark eyes and an adorable smile. There's only one picture I saw continuously of her, and it was so sweet. I don't know why, but it reminds me of my cousin Kylie, who's nine. Just the same, like, cheeky little girl smile, you know, and dark eyes, dark hair. So cute. 
literally there's nothing known about her. And the only thing that is known is really this more recent media coverage of her case. And it's really not even about her. It's about this prime suspect. What we do know is that on January 6th of 1988, Christine had turned 10 literally just two days before and was living with her mom, her mom's boyfriend, and her two stepsisters in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. That is what we know. On this day, January 6th, Christine was given money by her mom and sent out to run some errands. She left just about sunset. And in January in Rhode Island, this is probably like 4 p.m., honestly. Yeah, let's be real. That's like the time of year where the sunset is the earliest, honestly, in January. So, probably like 4 o'clock. Her mom had asked her to get an exciting combination of milk and clams. I love both of those things separately. I like milk. I am someone who drinks milk out of a cup. I said it, okay? And I also like clams. I love clam chowder, love clam strips. Milk and clams together makes me feel physically ill. See, I'm the polar opposite. I cannot stand seafood of any kind. Okay. I try to be as dairy-free as possible. I'm an oat milk kind of girl. Sure. Um, so that combination also turned my stomach. Interesting. See how people can come together with different opinions? That's not, <laughs> now's not the time. That night, Christine walked to a local store known as Saint's Market, where she was confirmed to have bought milk and also some gumballs, which I think is such a, you give a kid money and you say, go out and get me this. Um, she, there's like a, a messenger fee. Like she deserves to buy some candy. <laughs> She needs a little sweet treat for her labors. Hell yeah. Understandably. Think of it like a DoorDash, like a the tax, <laughs> the extra tax on top. That's what I think. This is actually the last known sighting of Christine while she was alive. Christine's next destination would have been to a nearby seafood market to get some clams. Somewhere between the time that she purchased those milk and gumballs and left the store to go to the seafood market, Christine disappeared. The only evidence that Christine had disappeared after the market, besides the fact that the store owner had seen her, was that the store owner had given her some gloves, like some mittens to borrow, because it was January and she was out walking and she didn't have any. So he gave her a pair of gloves. And investigators later found one of those gloves in the parking lot, in the snow of this market. So how she lost that glove is unknown, but... This could be where she was abducted, quote-unquote, what they thought. The police, obviously, were they were called immediately when Christine didn't come home at, like, a normal time from her quick errand to get dinner. And initially, the police were like, I don't know. Did she get abducted or is she a runaway? And the reason they said this is because in 1985, about three years earlier, Christine had, quote, run away and was then immediately found in a nearby dumpster. Even if she had run away, she turned 10 two days earlier. Um, she needed to be looked for. Also, it was January. Um, like so many things that are obvious as to what you would consider criteria to start searching for someone. Run away or not. That's crazy to me. So awful. The police were immediately the opposite of optimistic about Christine's prognosis due to the freezing January temps. And their ultimate theory was that Christine had gotten lost, tried to find somewhere warm to sleep, like a dumpster or garage, and then fell asleep and died of exposure. 
Unfortunately, that theory was squashed only 54 days later when a man walking his dog on Conomacut Point Park in Warwick saw something wash up in the sand. He approached it and he thought it was a mannequin. Here's a hint. It's never a fucking mannequin. Ever. It's always a body. Isn't that so sad how your brain tries to trick you and you try to think it's not the worst possible thing that you could come across? Right. Because that's terrible. Oh, my God. All the time, it's like, oh, I thought it was a doll or a mannequin or... A rock. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Christine, friends and family told police that she would never have gone anywhere near the river herself. She was very afraid of water. And also, it was wintertime. Right. So, not really the best weather for a swim. No. Especially with a little girl who was terrified of water. Yeah, that doesn't really make sense. Medical examiners ruled her cause of death as asphyxia with submersion, but it was unable to be determined whether Christine drowned or was suffocated. Which to me is interesting because if she was suffocated and then put in the water, then there would be no water in her lungs. Mm -hmm. But if she was drowned, there would be water in her lungs. So I feel like... not that hard. I I feel like... What do we know, right? We're not medical examiners. But that was my first thought. Like... Mm -hmm. I mean, if there was water in there, then she was drowned. But if... The, okay, whatever. Either way, she met a, a terrible death. I feel like the very word submersion automatically implies water. Sure. That's just my thought. Okay, fair. Christine's case quickly went cold with no leads and really not much evidence. Yeah. Until Pawtucket Police Detective Susan Cormier reopened Christine's case in August of 2018. She discovered that there was evidence that was submitted for forensic testing, but it was not included in the case file. Now, the thing about this woman, Susan Cormier, or Cormier, however you want to pronounce it, she really had a dream. She opened the Pawtucket cold case unit and she said, I'm going to find the answer to these 52 cases. And she laid out basically what we now know as like a deck of cards with missing people or unsolved homicides on them. And for whatever reason, Sue decided on this case for her first case of the deck of cards. She decided, I'm going to do this one. And that's when they discovered in evidence that they had these pair of pants that Christine wore that day. And they found this little tiny blood stain on the inside of her pant leg. And they were like, well, let's test it. It's 2018 now. It's been 30 years. Like there's, we got some advanced technology to try and find out who this belongs to if not to Christine. And so they sent it in. They were going to test the DNA using a test called the STR profile, which stood for short tandem repeat, which profiles basically the male chromosome. That's like a big part of it. The results of the STR profile were then checked against the Rhode Island Department of Health and revealed a match. They decided to start digging into this guy's family tree. I mean, they had a match of the sort And they were like, oh, this guy is literally like four years younger than what this case timeline was. So who around you that is male can we look at? 59-year-old Joao Montero quickly popped up on their radar because this man was the 26-year-old's father. Right. And, you know, given how DNA works and all that, okay, it makes sense that they could be connected. Sure, I could see that. But also, here's the thing. 
DNA like that could also be connected to literally any male relative of his. Just keep that in mind. Not just his papa. Joao Montero had moved at least 19 times in the last 30 years, living at multiple addresses in Christine's neighborhood. It was also determined that he had lived at an apartment at 78 Slater Street, which was very conveniently directly above Saints Market, which very conveniently was the store where Christine was last seen. Right. Joao also had a habit, and the police quickly started to look into him, and they started to kind of gather intel. Hmm. And I'm sure they all felt very sneaky and very, you know, we're going to case him, and we're going to follow him, and we're going to really build a profile, and we're going to get this guy for killing the 10-year-old. We're going to get him. Yeah. They found that Joao had kind of a habit that they immediately deemed suspicious. Yeah, and I thought this was a little bizarre that they thought it was suspicious. He would park in the back of the parking lot, which is kind of near where Christine's glove was found. Right. So they're thinking, okay, we got him. We got him. They also discovered that when he went to work, he would typically park in the way back and behind these two big trucks, which... You know, to me, I didn't find super weird because I've worked in plenty, like PetSmart, a grocery store. You're an employee. You park in the back so that the customers can have their cars up front. Right. That's not super weird for me. They also seem to think that this meant that he was living a, quote, covert lifestyle. That and the moving around 19 times, and they never specified how many years. Could have been 19 years. Could have been 40 years. Still, I don't think that necessarily makes someone covert or suspicious they also noted that his license never really matched up to his address i wonder if that's because of the time it took to get a new license every time he moved i have no idea and we do want to point out he was a legal immigrant he was in this country legally okay so he could drive a car he could have a license he could live somewhere and have his name on documents legally that's all legit So they really thought that, oh, this guy is super sneaky. He's like a sneaky boy. So they they latched onto that hard. That was like their thing. Yeah. And I feel like, unfortunately, because they were very hyper-focused on him and they were so convinced that it was him, Mm -hmm. they kind of put on blinders and really neglected the fact that it could be somebody else. And they really neglected to look into all of their options. Right. They really sunk their teeth into him because they were like, this is the first case that we're trying to solve. And out of that deck, oh, look, a match. Great. We did it. We've done it. And they were so proud. But they there was a lot of faults along the way that are very obviously poor investigating. A search warrant was obtained to get swab samples from Joao and they were a match. Sure. He was arrested that same night at his job at Cumberland Farms. Like you said, Liz, Joao was a legal immigrant. He was actually from Cape Verde, and he only spoke Creole. Mm. So naturally, when someone does not speak English, or maybe English is not their first language, you would ethically, legally, morally bring in an interpreter. Yes, so that the perpetrator in question could understand what you were asking. Oh, and in turn, you could understand what he was saying. Logic, right? So it's really interesting to me when I read in several articles that Joao did not have much of a reaction when he was ordered to be held without bail on the murder charge. 
I don't think I would really have much of a reaction either if I was not able to understand what was being told to me. Right. Like, how are you asking this guy deep, serious questions and getting any kind of answer that would be appropriate? Or maybe if I wasn't expressing understanding or comprehension and I was giving someone a blank look, Mm -hmm. you would think that you would interpret that as, oh, maybe he doesn't understand what we are telling him. Right. And the thing too is like, I, at my work, we don't have, I mean, I'm, I live in Maine. There's not a lot of diversity, but occasionally we will have a patient who speaks a different language. And we have this awesome like video interpreter iPad thing that is so cool. And I use it as much as I can with these kind of patients. Can it be kind of annoying? Sure. Pulling up an iPad, getting it all set up just to ask them if they want pain meds. Yeah, I can, I can get that. But it's so important to keep that language barrier open so that you don't have mistakes made. And I feel as though that can also apply to a police investigation about a little girl who was murdered. Right. Especially when we start getting into legal territory. Yeah. I know medically in the patient's bill of rights, Mm -hmm. that is like highlighted, bolded, large font that you have the right to understand what is being told to you? What is being done to you? 100%. That should definitely apply to pinning a murder on somebody. Mm-hmm. You'd think, right? Well, you'd think. Well, you sunk wrong. <laughs> because uh, Sue Cormier, she, uh, again, they just were like latched on like a puppy to your sweater sleeve. Like, so <laughs> vicious. And like you said, they had gotten a warrant to swab his DNA. That was not before they uh, searched his trash, though, to find, attempt to find, you know, DNA evidence or fingerprints, which of course didn't work. So then they got that warrant. And I don't think Zhao knew what was happening. I don't think he understood why he was getting his mouth swabbed, you know? Oh, And it could be in part because they didn't give him a fucking interpreter. So easy to just get that. It blows my mind. I don't know. And going back a little bit to a medical perspective, if I went up to a patient and did that to a patient, like physically touching them, doing something with them, swab in mouth, and that patient was not properly informed of what I did, that is assault and battery. Yep. I would go to prison. Yep. I would have my nursing license revoked. Yep. And I would never be able to, number one, lay hands on a patient again. Right. Work as a nurse in any state. And I would have my life ruined. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not to mention that when they decided to bring in Zhao for, you know, this not even appropriate interrogation, they did it in front of all of his peers at work. That ruins how people look at you, whether you're innocent or not. Mm -hmm. Like, something happened enough where they thought you were good enough as a suspect in a crime. That can really tarnish your reputation and your own self-esteem. Unfortunately, the police, because they had latched onto Montero so much, they decided to start looking into his background. And, you know, they had already looked in his trash and they already thought it was weird that he was, you know, parking in the back of a parking lot and all this stuff. And he moved so many times. Well, they looked into his background and they found that he did have a little bit of a criminal history. In the 1990s, Montero was charged with two counts of felony assault with a dangerous weapon. 
he ended up pleading no contest to that charge and was sentenced to two years probation. Other crimes on his record include like a DUI, reckless driving, and a simple assault. There wasn't a whole bunch of information about any of those things, so it's unclear to the extent, but this had been the first felony charge since that felony assault with a dangerous weapon, which had happened 20 plus years prior. Uh, he was described as like a hardworking man, very loyal. He was always fought for his rights and for his family. He had four kids. So it was like, that was in his past. And yes, you know, that is important to note. But they again took something and they were like, see, 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 we got him. We got him good. We got him. He did this thing before. He DUI. So he killed a girl. Like they really just were on him. And I guess it made it easy because he was um, a person of color. Mm-hmm. Who did not speak English. Oh, that's right. He didn't speak English. Which is really easy to manipulate if you want to manipulate. 100%. Detective Susan Cormier, our bestie, yep. said Joao had no relation to Christine. And when interviewed by police, Joao said he denied knowing her or being the one who murdered her. Mm. Okay. The affidavit supporting Joao's arrest reported that Christine was missing her shoes and underwear and that her pants had been refastened in a way that, quote, appeared to be extremely tight and haphazardly. I'm wondering if that is pointing towards a sexual assault of some kind. It makes me think, perhaps, I mean, if her underwear was missing mm -hmm. and her pants were put back on. Yeah, that is a little bizarre. And they find a drop of blood coming from a man on the inside of her pants. That yeah. really sucks. That, yeah, that's awful. Detective Susan Cormier also contacted Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick, who was the founder of a company called Identifinders International. This company specializes in genetic genealogy, and they have a record of helping Warwick police with solving a 2013 murder of a jogger. Mm. This technology allows for a profile of a suspect to be built even when there isn't enough DNA present, which was exactly the case with the blood from Christine's pants. There wasn't enough DNA present in that one little drop of blood mm -hmm. to pinpoint a specific individual. Right. So they use the genetic genealogy database and they were able to determine, based on probability, mm. the race, ethnicity, and geographical location of the population that they identified with this technology. Right. So basically what this technology is doing is they're taking a sample mm -hmm. and they're using what little DNA evidence that they have to build a profile of the suspect that they think it could be. They're not saying, oh, the DNA is coming up as 59-year-old Joao Montero. Right, right. They're saying the DNA is showing that this population could be an individual from Cape Verde. Right. This population that the suspect is from could be a black male. Right. Could be... In his 30s to 60s. Right. You know, it's very broad. Super. They're building a profile. They're building... It's based on probability. Right. Which, to me, if myself or a loved one is going to go down for murder, I want it to be 100%. Of course. From a legality standpoint, you kind of also want it to be 100% that you have the suspect. Yeah. You cannot present in a court of law probability right you cannot say oh it's 25 even 99 percent mm -hmm. no it has to be 100 percent right so because this population identified that it was a probability 
that the suspect could have been from Cape Verde. Right. Joao is from Cape Verde. What? Oh, wow. That's so crazy. He must be our guy. What a coincidence. Crazy. And so, unfortunately, they did arrest Zhao on the murder charge of Christine's death. However, the very next day, prosecutors released him on bail. They ordered to pay 10% of the $50,000 bail, so $5,000. And this was due to, quote, very little compelling evidence, which is very true. Sue, our friend, the one who founded the Pawtucket Cold Case Unit, announced Montero's arrest publicly, turned it into a massive fanfare, and even exploited some of the, quote, evidence that they had found. She even said, quote, I hope this is a message to the people responsible for these crimes. We are coming for you, end quote. And I believe that is in reference to the other people involved in the missing people and the murdered people on those deck of cards that she had sprung together. Yes. So she's telling everyone else, like, see, we got one, we'll get you. So she made it this whole media thing. So everybody knew that Zhao Montero was arrested for Christine Cole's death 30 years before. However, 10 months after his arrest in February of 2020, that's right, 2020, a state judge dismissed the murder charge against Montero because the state prosecutors still could not find enough evidence to be able to confidently present the case to a grand jury. Meaning, kind of what you just said, Katie, the DNA evidence, it was more of a probability. And that doesn't hold up in court. If there is even a shred of doubt that these jurors feel, they are taught and told over and over again during the process that any doubt is worth noting. So if these prosecutors themselves even knew like, no shit, they're going to be like, there's doubt here. Not worth bringing it to trial. It's going to fail. Right. And imagine if he had been convicted on this charge. Ridiculous. Hello, call up the Innocence Project. Absolutely. That's crazy. How many people go down for shit like this based on really properly put together cases? Right. So many. It happens all too often. Especially for people of color. Right. And even the defense wouldn't have had a great argument. Oh, you had this little stain in it. That DNA probability thing would come right back to them, too, on the defense side. So it's just... Whether he did it or not, there was not enough evidence to even close to bring it to trial. Right. And it also does not rule out any of his family members. Correct. Because they would all be part of that probability profile thing, too. Absolutely. Joao ended up filing a lawsuit against police, and his attorney, Mark Lovie Ray, stated, quote, just being a regular hardworking guy and one day threatened with life in prison. It could have been dozens of other people. Why they focused on him, we are not sure. Yeah. Detective Susan Cormier, hmm, <laughs> Trevor LaFrube, Daniel Mullen, and Tina Goncalves, in addition to Tamara Wong of the Rhode Island Department of Health, have all been accused of falsifying DNA evidence as well as misrepresenting evidence to obtain an arrest warrant. Yes. That's pretty serious stuff. That is very serious stuff. And I mean, I'm kind of with him on it. Not gonna lie. Again, do we know if he did it? No. What we do know is these several important facts. The DNA only led to an answer of probability, and it also was never considered that it could be any other member of his family. 
they interrogated him and did not use an interpreter for someone who did not speak English as a primary language. That's literally so dumb. And then, like, I think the publicity and the fanfare that Sue Cormier kind of threw together, I mean, that's, she wanted the publicity. They even called her in this lawsuit a, quote, media hound, because clearly she wanted attention. She wanted to see, look what I did. I'm doing something awesome for our city, for our state. Look how fast I was able to get a case solved. And while I think it's great that she made the Pawtucket cold case unit, that's a wonderful thing. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Don't use it to racially profile is all I have to say. And don't do it because you're a narcissist. Right. Do it because you want to help people and get justice for these victims. Mm -hmm. Don't use it as an opportunity to be in the spotlight. Right. Joao's attorney feels as though he was arrested without probable cause, suffered emotional distress, and was deprived of his rights. The detectives that handled his arrest did not have an interpreter available for part of the investigation. Um, Huge violation. Of course. How are they reading him his Miranda rights? Without an interpreter present. Good good point. I'm sorry. Take the handcuffs off him and let him go. Right. That is not a real arrest. No. If he cannot comprehend that Miranda rights. Right. That is crazy to me. Yep. And a lot of people who go to prison and they appeal, they use that as kind of like a a part of their defense. And mm-hmm. we've done we've talked about it before with people on here. They say I wasn't I wasn't in the state to comprehend the Miranda rights or right. whatever. So that's very interesting. The police also used the language barrier, quote, as an opportunity to fabricate incriminating admissions. Granted, that is alleged, but mm-hmm. I'm going to throw it out there and say that I probably agree with that. I would, too. And you know what? I found something very interesting um, regarding the process of arresting someone for, like, murder in Rhode Island. So, in the lawsuit highlights this. So in Rhode Island, the procedure for a murder case involves prosecutors from the attorney general's office to be included in the investigation, and then they decide whether or not to proceed with a grand jury. However, the Pawtucket police completely bypassed this and saw Montero's arrest completely of their own volition. Yep. So then they kind of... tie it to uh, the fact that they completely bypassed, you know, the attorney's general's office Mm kind of shows that they really just wanted publicity and they just wanted to get it done. Right. They wanted to cut corners, do it the fastest way possible so that they could get all the credit. A hundred percent. And despite all these facts, Zhao Montero is still considered a prime suspect in Christine's death. Although, you know, he was released on bail the next day 10 months later they were like no we're not doing this there's still a possibility that he could be they could gather evidence and they could try and bring it to court again yes Mm -hmm. but he still remains a prime suspect and you can imagine how that instills fear in him wouldn't it cause you to be fearful all the time oh my god especially to knowing that you were stalked essentially yeah your trash was dug through Mm -hmm. you were made out to be what was the word they used? Covert. Yeah. You were made out to be suspicious, this, like, suspicious covert individual. And he's literally just parking his car. <laughs> right. Like what? Maybe he likes a walk. I don't know. Like what? 
It's so bizarre. It's just not enough. It's all circumstantial. Mm-hmm. None of it's concrete. And both sides knew that it just would not hold up in court. Right. And with this whole publicity stunt, their urgency to get this case solved, they completely brushed the victim of the murder, mm-hmm. a 10-year-old girl, yeah. under the rug. Like, let's give her the attention. Of course. Let's make it about getting her justice. Let's 100%. not make it about, look what I did. Go me. I'm a superstar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All of these articles I found, there was one paragraph about Christine and what happened to her. And the rest was about Sue and all the highlighting all the stuff she did. And then about Zhao and how, like, literally he was so secretive and, like, an awful person. And it's like, what about the little girl that died? Oh, my God. One article I read, I was scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and it was all about Sue. Yep. And there was maybe one picture of Christine Cole Mm -hmm. on the deck of cards. Right. And you scroll down and there's Sue walking in the street of Pawtucket. And there's Sue in the police office. She's holding up the deck of cards. She's she's <laughs> has her hand on her hip and she's looking in the distance. Like, I'm serious. No, literally. There were all these pictures. And again, I think it's fantastic what she did to create this cold case unit. But a little bit of evidence here pokes at the fact that this was kind of, they jumped the gun. For sure. Racially as well. Joao has never had any interaction with Christine, and since his wrongful arrest, he has lost his job and has become homeless. Yeah. He also, like you said, Liz, is a father of four, Mm. and he lost his means to provide for his family. Yeah. And any future jobs that he has, that's going to come up. Mm -hmm. He's going to be looked down upon. He's going to be seen as a criminal. And do we know for sure whether he did it or not? No. To be treated that way? Unfair. Completely unfair. Yep. Because, you know, we have to go by innocent until proven guilty. Of course. He very well could be an innocent man. Yeah. And that kind of leads to the question, did he do it? I think, you know, it could go a lot of ways. I think that, you know, the fact that the DNA sample did have a connection to him and his son is interesting. Mm -hmm. But that DNA sample also could be a cousin or a nephew or an uncle. Like it's basically any close male relative in their bloodline. And my question would be, if that is the case, are there family members of theirs around in that area that they could also test? And if there are, why haven't they? That's what I was thinking too. Who was living with Joao at that apartment above the market where Christine was last seen? Right. Is that a very strange coincidence? I think that we need to be looking further into that for sure. Yeah. Hard to say at this point. Yeah. But I do think that maybe they could have expanded their investigation into other people of his family aside from him. Absolutely. Because they kind of screwed themselves there. Yeah. It's a little ridiculous. And like I said, he still remains the prime suspect in this case. And a part of the problem of that for me is that that kind of means they decided it's him Mm -hmm. and they're not going to look into it anymore. Instead, they'll waste their resources trying to find more ways to pin it on him. And again, maybe it is him, and then that would work out. But more than likely, they're wasting resources and time. 100%. So it's a very interesting case in that it gives you kind of mixed feelings. Because obviously, working to solve this deck of cards of missing people, unsolved homicides, is a great move. Great idea. And, you know, to Sue's credit, she did found that. She did put... Like something like 
4,500 packs of these cards in local prisons for inmates to look at. That's a great step. Mm-hmm. She Every week, there's 52 cards in a deck, right? So there's 52 cases. And for a year, every week, she went on the news every Friday and talked about each case. Amazing. Love that. But her tenacity for the public's eye and approval of what she's doing kind of steered her in the wrong direction and perhaps put an innocent man through a lot of turmoil. Agreed. And I know that may be controversial, but there just isn't enough evidence to put Zhao at the murder scene. There's just not. And I think there sometimes investigators, I'm not just saying in this case, but all the time, investigators will find someone that they like as a suspect and they'll stick to it. And it happens everywhere. Mm-hmm. But I think a f- factor of that is his race. And it's easier to just say that the person of color did it. I agree completely. And it's really not uncommon for that to be the case, especially when a little white girl is the victim. Yeah. Christine, of course, is part of the Rhode Island cold case deck of cards, and she is the queen of hearts. Anyone with any information on the murder of Christine Cole is asked to please call 1-877-RI-SOLVE. And that is the awful murder of Christine Cole and the very messed up investigation regarding Zhao Montero. Guys, we would obviously love to hear what you think. Do you think that this investigation was bungled? Do you think he could have done it? Do you think that the DNA evidence was enough for you, maybe, to think that he did it? You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at TrueCrimeNE. All lowercase. Or you can send us an email at TrueCrimeNE at gmail.com telling us what you think about this case. We also have a website, truecrimene.com. You could go to our webpage for this case and look at the beautiful photo of Christine. You could also go to our contact page and use our handy-dandy submission tool to send us your thoughts about this case, other cases we've covered, suggestions for cases based in New England, please, preferably in Rhode Island at this time. Yes, please. For us to cover and talk about on the podcast. You can leave your name if you so choose. If we end up covering the case that you suggested on an episode, we will give you a little shout out. You can, however, be anonymous if you so choose. We will still love any suggestions, any questions, comments, concerns. And yeah, we just really appreciate you guys listening. And if you feel like you want to do a little extra and reach out, we would love that as well. Yeah. And if you scroll just a bit further down, you'll find a little button that says, thank you. It leads you right to buy us a coffee where you can, you can, if you want, spend money on us. It goes to a good cause, i.e. the happiness of our bellies. You can buy me a hot chocolate and Katie a coffee. But honestly, guys, we don't need any of that. We don't need money. We don't have any problem with just hearing feedback and hearing from you guys. We love it all the same. So thank you. And honestly, too, even if you don't do any of those things, the fact that you are still here listening means the world to us. Absolutely. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.